Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Recorded live from the lobby of the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. You're listening to D.C. Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. This is an episode of All Things Local, where we speak to different Washingtonians who have made a difference in the city. I'm your host, Ray Barker, an archivist of the D.C. Public Library and Special Collections. And today we're speaking to the one and only Tom Berard. Uh, Welcome, Tom. Well, thank you. Sure. Uh, so I've known Tom for a while, and I've just seen him around. I think a lot of people know Tom, even if they don't know they know Tom. Um, <laughs> but uh, I first encountered your your image on the Salad Days documentary, I think. And I um, kind of make fun of Tom when I see him out and call him the scenester uh, in music scene, because that's sort of how he's credited yep. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness in the, docu- in the documentary. But um, I guess I just thought we'd talk a little bit about your your life in, in D.C. and start at the beginning there and how you discovered music and in what ways you discovered music because it's such a big part of your life and, and the D.C. music and specifically, at least from my understanding and how I've seen you around, it's like a big, like a really big and important part of your, your life. Right. And that's like what intrigued me about, I mean, you and I have talked a couple of times, but I like that we're able to like talk in this forum uh, and the podcast forum in this place specifically today. So thanks for coming do you want to talk a little bit about like uh, what I call like a biographical note? Like what, uh, like where did you grow up, and uh, and talk us through a little bit of the, uh, your teen years and discovering music. Well, I grew up out in out in the suburbs and one of the original Chevrolet Hillbillies, uh, Chevrolet Maryland, out in PG County, and uh, you know I always listened to music. My, I had two older brothers who turned me on to a bunch of stuff, and uh, one of the things I remember as a kid was the uh, the record White Lies by Grin. Uh, which was just a cool, you know, rock record in in uh, in their collection. I uh, didn't know that they were a local band, um, but it was one of the things I like. And then, you know, when I went to high school, I started making all these friends with people who were into music and learned all kinds of stuff from them. And you know, would would read Rolling Stone when I got a copy of it, or or um, you know, read books and stuff from the library. And I remember I read some histories of rock and roll that opened my eyes to a bunch of stuff. And, you know, I used to read about, like, the Stooges and the MC5 and stuff. And these were bands I'd never heard, but I knew stuff about them. And it was like, I want to hear them sometime, you know. And, and we're uh, talking, like, 77, 76? Or, like, where are we? A little earlier, 74, 70, like, 75, 76. You know, uh, that was when I was, you know, a couple, like, freshman year of high school, you know, and making more friends and stuff and... um and going well, to shows and or well, I didn't go to shows early on. Like the first show I ever went to was Jackson Brown in like '77. My brother took me, um, and you know I listened to HFS, so um, I did have a, you know, more of a grounding in like the hippie, you know, the hippie stuff, and and later. And that's that like famous local station out of. Uh... It was in Bethesda. Okay, yeah. mm-hmm. and it was a free form radio station that you know started as like a side project of another station or there was a show called this spiritus cheese that was kind of the first progressive show on this on the station and then progressive means like non-popular non-corporate yeah, you know, kind of stuff or like what would non-pop that? album rock you know whatever you want to call it and um so i got you know aware of, of other stuff going on um 
And one of my friends in high school, Chris Driscoll, had gone to um, junior high with uh, Tommy Kane, who was Mark, uh, Kim Kane's brother. From uh, Slicky Boys, mm-hmm. and so he turned me on to the Slicky Boys, and you know that was rock and roll in the vein of you know punk rock and stuff. Right, and can you talk about Slicky Boys a little bit? I mean, they're sort of legendary in DC. Did they ever achieve a claim outside of? Uh, we're going to nerd out on music <laughs> for like the next thirty-five minutes, so like uh, you know, there put you your go. fingers in your ears if it's not uh, something you're into. But uh, I mean, we don't have to dive down too much into all the bands you mentioned. But Slicky Boys are so like known here. Yeah, well, they were def- They were you know very. Busy, prolific band in D.C. They played all the time. Um, They have the distinction of being the band that played the 930 Club the most of of all. The Uh, current uh, 930. Well, both both of them. You know, they... They probably played the old one like 40, 50 times and the new one 30 times. You know, they played, some, I think, 80 times. And I was talking to Mark Noon recently, and he's played the venue 95 times because he's been in all kinds of other bands and done, so, I think, 930 times. No, yeah. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah. and they're like, uh, they're just traditional rock. I've seen them once. Well, they come out of like garage rock, you know, yeah. the 60s garage rock. They covered a whole bunch of obscure stuff. You know, a lot of their fans probably don't know that how many of their songs were covers. And they were friends with the Cramps, and uh, so they had that psychobilly thing going on. Um, they actually had an alter ego, a psychobilly alter ego called the Wank Tones, where they all had different silly names like Ursel Wank and Del Marva and. Uh, Elmer Presley. I think that was my favorite. Right. Wanked They're just name. having fun. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was part of, you know, the scene. And, and, you know, this friend of mine turned me on to them. And they were actually the second band I ever saw. The first time concert I went to was at Meriwether Post. And then the second one was like one of those spring flings they do. And the Slicky Boys played outside um, on a spring day, you know, which was definitely weird to see, you know, punk rock whatever out in the sunshine mm-hmm. sunshine and you're 15 and you're with your brother and your friends well i or? went to that one i don't even remember how i got to it i mean i was like 15 or 16 and i didn't drive um and you know the subway didn't go to brookland back then so i don't know how i got there um you know i probably got a ride from my mom or something <laughs> yeah. um that's the way it worked um, yeah and uh, and then from there, like, uh, when did you start assembling? I mean, we were going to dive into the archive notion, but I guess you started assembling and gathering, purchasing music of physical copies the way we would uh, around then. Well, one thing was both of my brothers had collected records and they kind of grew out of it. And so I ended up acquiring both of their record collections. So I had a good start, you know, right there um, that I had a lot of stuff to start with. Um, And you're just, like, learning about music, basically. Yeah, yeah. And I'm starting to go to shows, you know. And um, as it turns out, my brother, I have two older brothers. The younger of the two, he graduated from high school with Mark Noon. So... uh, You had that connection. I had more of a connection. And actually, when I started going to, like, teen idols and hardcore shows, um, sometimes I could get my brother Dave to drive me. I, I would get him to take me to uh, True Facts shows because he, he kind of liked Diana Quinn. <laughs> uh-huh. All the dudes love Diana. And, and I, I, I uh, so I could get him to come to shows. And I remember you know, the first time I took him, to, like, it was a Slicky Boys and t- uh, True Facts show. Uh, and he, he just thought the slam dancing was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, he didn't participate. No, no. But um, 
We are playing some tracks later, just for uh, anyone listening here that we're speaking to Tom Berard uh, about music, about DC music and punk music and his interest in it and his collecting and that, that sort of thing. But uh, we're, I asked Tom to select some tracks from some current DC bands, so we're not going to spend the entire time uh, waxing nostalgic. Uh, right. Uh, but uh, we'll move forward at some point and listen to some of that stuff and talk about how right. um, the punk music spirit, et cetera, is alive. And I think that's true. You know, yeah. I think that's true in DC. You can only spend so much time stroking the... the uh, the industrial, past, the industrial or, <laughs> what is it? The nostalgia industrial complex. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything that like sticks out to you? I mean, do you have a sense? I want. I've always wanted to ask you about like, what is it about? I know you like punk a lot. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit? And there's that image of you stage diving and stuff, and it just seemed very like visceral or some kind of like energy or. Uh, can you like characterize what it was as a teenager or late teens like about punk music? Specifically? I was just struck with how um how personal it was you know because you know I, growing up i had this perception you know i lived near the capital center i never you know I, it was a long time before i actually went to any concerts there but i had this notion of you know big concerts because i used to go to hockey games so i knew the venue you know but I, I wasn't going to any concerts out there and you know eric clapton and led zeppelin and stuff were playing out there but that was not my world at all i never went and then when I saw the Slicky Boys, it was like, they're right there, right in front of me, you know. And, and you know, this dude went to high school with my brother. And, um, you know, as I started going to shows and, and, you know, you're meeting the musicians, you're meeting all these people who know them. And, you know, you, you're standing next to somebody in the show and you start to talk to them and they have a band, too. And they're playing next week, you know, or tomorrow. And you just start getting and you're part of this scene. And so, you know, I've done some bands and stuff, but mostly it was just being with you know people that make music that i really like what they're doing and you know i get to know them and like them as people and want to support them you know want want other people to hear it you know and i definitely have a taste for weird music you know um when i get stuck in a situation where i'm not hearing you know my kind of music for a while i get antsy i get uncomfortable you know (laughs) um and then how do you respond to that then uh well, it's funny, you know, if I, I, I start talking in lyrics, you know, because anything somebody says will, will, you know, fire a synapse in some song related to what they're talking about pops into my head. And it's like, oh, you're talking about that, you know. Hmm. Um, but, you know, that's less of a concern nowadays because it's so much easier to silo yourself and only listen to your music. You know, it's like there's all this music out there that, you know, is really popular and and it's... You know, it's the top 40 of, of what's going on now, and I know a lot of the names, but I've never heard any of their music because I don't have to anymore. I don't get stuck, you know, in a situation where their music is being played and, you know, I just have to hear it. You right. Know? Um, is there a point where, I don't know how old you were when you started your a st- uh, started a band or played in a band. Was that a logical extension of, like, since you were saying how personal the music was, and it's like, wait, that guy is, like, right in front of me, and he yeah. went to that high school, and he's friends with my other friend and all that's you know that sort of close community you know accessible sort of you see somebody doing something you're like you know i think i could do that or yeah I could try yeah it, well it's funny because you know my reputation in the scene is i was always the one sitting on the side of the stage singing along all the songs and so like a, a band would form somebody would have a new band and everybody would joke that i already know all the lyrics you know but was that true i mean to a degree well I mean, it was, it was 
hyperbole, but yes, that was what I would do. You know, like at 9.30, I would always sit over on stage left where the stairs were. You know, that's where I would watch most shows from. And if it was a band I'd seen 20 times, I knew their lyrics by then, even if they hadn't put out any records. Um, but is there something personal about the music? I don't want to be too abstract with this. Is there something about the personal, uh, something personal about the music for you? Like, you're like really close to the musician and you're like, it's like you're inhabiting, you know what I mean? Like yeah. a live setting. Yeah. There's that certain element to it, you know? So I had this reputation as, you know, always singing along. And so my first band, I sang. And um, my friend David Byers had done the, the enzymes and they had broken up. And so I formed a band with him. And, um, and I was a singer. And it was funny because, you know, all along I'd been a singer, you know, because I would go to shows and I would learn the songs and I would sing along. And, and there when, was air quotes there, I guess, right? Yeah, well, when I was, yeah, I was, you know, I was karaoke or whatever, you know, singing along, I wasn't... I wasn't but Tom did make the sign with his fingers. Yes. I'm not saying he wasn't a singer. I'm saying Tom was indicating that the yeah. singing was a just like a broader sense of what singing Exactly, was. singing in the shower. Yeah, yeah. Were. And so, um, you know, everybody said I should, I'd be a good singer. And so I joined this band with... Danny and Tony Young and, and David. And um, I didn't understand that it meant like you were expected to write the songs and you were expected to, you know, fit the lyrics to music someone else wrote. It was like I was, I had always just had that in and front of me. And melody. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe somebody else could write the music, but mm-hmm. I had to write the lyrics and match them to the song. And I don't think I ever wrote anything. I did, you know, didn't get that, you know. And I ended up getting kicked out of the band. You know, they went on not too long after me, but they, buyers sang for, you know, for the rest of it. And I was told I was a good front man, but I, 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 you know, it was a challenge for me to learn the lyrics. And, um, you know, we did a um, Black Sabbath cover, and I got that one. I did it, we did it because, well, in my mind, we did it because the Dickies had covered it. We did Paranoid. Um, right. You know, and that, that one I could do. I, I learned easier because I knew the Dickies version. Right, right, but, rather than uh, doing the original yeah. as it was. But it was several years later when I uh, picked up a bass and... and I've done several bands as a bass player. Um, right. And I had these questions. I don't know where we are in the chronology there, but I always have to talk about um, the venues. Mm-hmm. And did you go to the original 930 before like DC Space? Or like what? Uh, we're kind of near the chronology here. Like some of these big early on, these venues that you went to. Well, to the see first show I saw at 930 was in like August of 1980. That was the year they opened. They opened at the end of May. And we're on uh, F Street or whatever, right? Yeah, down on F Street. Um, they're coming up on the 40-year anniversary, you know, Nick, in a couple months. Um, and and what was that place like? I mean, I don't know, you know, there aren't, aren't a lot of people around that... It was a great little dive, you know. It was, it was down a long hallway in an old 10-floor uh, building, you know. A, it's a tall building, I know. Yeah, kind of a typical D.C. building. It was one of the... From what I understand, it was like the tallest steel and brick structure in the city or something when it was built and um it was just this relatively small room in the back and you know it was opened with with an eye to building a scene the local stuff yeah um you know Dodie had this idea to make it of the moment you know this is what's going on and we're going to be part of this so non-genre specific but more just like whatever local was well no i think it was it was going to be you know new wave and and punk it was going to be the new shit that was happening yeah the new wave there were those new wave exactly and um 
Urban Verbs, right? Is that yeah, yeah. Like some of those bands had played when the, it was the Atlantis, which only lasted for a few months, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but when 9:30 opened, you know, it was better bankroll, so they knew they, they'd be in there for the long haul. And it and then, definitely had an aesthetic. So that's 1980, and then DC Space. Yeah. And then when it went, what were some of the shows you saw? Well, DC Space opened a few years before 9:30, um, but I don't think I went. I don't even know which one I went to first. It probably was 9:30, but I'm not positive. I know, you know, I saw shows in at DC Space in December of 1980 because that was the Unheard Music Festival, and that was a show where a whole bunch of the hardcore bands. And that played. was upstairs. Yeah, that's back when the. The music was done upstairs. And this is 80, I think. It was December of 1980, yeah. And Ian's band played? Minor, it was like, I think it was SOA's first show, and it was Minor Threat's second show. Uh-huh. Minor Threat's first show was just around the corner on Columbia Road. Or Columbia Road? 18th at, Street? In Ontario? Or? No, it was, at, it was at House. It was oh, in, wow. the, in the, um, the living room, the front room of a typical D.C. row house. 1929... Calvert Street. I'm pretty sure that's the address. That sounds right. So it's, yeah, and it's it's known in some circles that that's where it was. But uh, and then you get over time, you got to know the the bands and the band exactly. members, and you're still yeah. friends with these people. Mm-hmm. Are they still around? Oh yeah, that- yeah. It's funnily enough, I, we I ran into Brian Baker in the lobby of the hotel before we started the radio show. Right. Um, and then uh, I guess um, yeah, I guess moving on a little bit, I um, was curious to know about how you. Well, so I mentioned earlier, I just have a couple of thoughts. Uh, one on the drive over was, and I made reference to this at the top of the show, how like you're, you know, you're in Punk the Capital, that recent mm-hmm. document, James yes. Schneider and uh, yeah. Paul the Show and um, the third gentleman, I want to mention. Sam. Sam Levine. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. And you're in there and I mentioned you're in Salad Days. Right. So there's, um, anymore it feels like the, the Punk DC stuff gets a lot of coverage. Right. And I wondered, I was just going to get your thoughts on, is there... I mean, what, I guess it's a two-parter. What mm-hmm. is it that draws people to it, you know? And secondly, do you ever feel like it's over-covered? You know what I mean? Like, what it, I wonder what it's revealing over multiple sort of passes. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's hard to say. Um, and I ask these because I have no answer. I have no answer it's, to myself. It's, it's hard to say because, you know, I've lived here all my life, so I don't know what it's like not to, you know, I mean... Not for it to be important. You know, it was important to me when I discovered it. And I would hope it would be important to other people. And, you know, I don't know if there was some point where it became important outside of D.C. You know, it was just I've always been very into it and very into spreading the gospel. You know, I've done I did radio my one year, you know, in Loyola College and then I did radio on WMUC at University of Maryland for several years when I was a student and when I wasn't a student. Um, and I, you know, I was doing my best to propagate this music, you know, to support the bands I liked. You all, know, whether, D- all DC stuff? Well, no. I mean, I, I focused on a lot because it's, you know, I would be talking about the shows they were doing and I'd be buying, you know, buying records at shows and, and playing them. Um, actually, that that is more of a recent thing to buy somebody's records at their shows because really? it used to be you'd buy them only at the record stores yeah you know merch table at a at a show what is rel- like I don't know at the least 90s in, maybe at, at, yeah at least in my old head seems like a new development yeah you know? whatever new is yeah but um but we were talking about uh, what was that oh um whether 
Uh, well, the, you know, it is a DC export. Like Discord yeah. is like a, and Punk is like an internationally known kind of entity. I guess. I mean, what happened was we got involved and we befriended the bands that came from other towns. You know, like um, early on, we, did the Discord people and, and so on got befriended the Necros from Maumee, Ohio. And that got us in touch with the Midwest scene. And, you know, they had gone to California before that and met Black Flag and Dead Kennedys and stuff. And so, you know, we were, we were as much as people focus on D.C., we were focused on, you know, the L.A. and the Huntington Beach sound and, and San Francisco and, you know, Flipper and the Dead Kennedys and, you know, all the bands from there. And so we just always were doing that. And we knew that there was this subculture of people that were just totally into this and would go to any lengths you know and you'd buy Flipside and maximum rock and roll and all the other zines. fanzines yeah. and you'd read the scene reports and you'd learn about you know what was going on in phoenix you know and, and so the whole community and this yeah. whole connections mm-hmm. are all covered there yeah but uh when did the zine or zine collecting or flyer collecting or set list uh collecting start because i mean we can talk about the set list stuff in a little bit but well you I, know what i mean where you start like like this is important i love the music but i also like want something well you know, zines were typically something you'd find in a record store. You'd go to the record store and, you know, you'd go to buy some records, but there'd also be a fanzine for a dollar or two, and you'd pick that up. And, yeah. you know, it might be a local zine that would have some information about other scenes, or it would have, it would be some, you know, something from across the country, and you'd learn, you know, what was going on there. And you'd buy, you know, I know friends who were really big into the enemy and sounds and Melody Maker, the three British rags, you know, because, um, that's one thing that DC kind of lost was we didn't have that much print coverage. Um, we had the Unicorn Times, but that ended, you know, before the scene got too big. And, um, you know, the city paper would just put like one review in every third issue or something. So there wasn't that much coverage. But of course, it helped you know what shows were coming up. Sure. You know, so. But within the set list stuff or the flyer stuff, like when did you start assembling like this thing that you like this body of? Well, it was just a matter of I was just so excited about it that if there was ephemera, that there, if there was some documentation that existed for it, I wanted to hang on to it. And you you've know? held on to it ever since. I've heard of, <laughs> yeah, I have, I've yeah. heard about this uh, stor- storage locker. This, yeah, uh, yeah. Storage locker of stuff somewhere and cassettes and stuff like that. It's exactly. just kind of nice to, to think about the. Uh, I like a record, you know, you're keeping a record of that, of that time and, yeah. you know, you're kind of compelled to, to want to have some part of it, like a memento or something. Right. But I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's yeah. what I'm seeing. But a funny, funny, you know, funny story is that I went to the first minor threat show and I saw the set list. I may have it. I don't know, but I remember seeing the song straight edge and this was back when I had a window cleaning business and I would carry, uh, a knife with a straight edge razor that I would use to scrape bird crap off of windows. And so that was where my head went when I saw straight edge. I was way off base, you know, and I had no idea that song would become so important. And to that their, it would mean the straight edge. Yeah. yeah it would inspire or whatever that exactly movement or whatever. Straight yeah. edge. That's cool. From bird shit to, uh, <laughs> you know, a life perspective on yes. uh, how to live. Uh, but, um, we can, um, I, I had one more question for you, then we can, well, the set list, like when we yeah. ran into each other at a Koriki show, right. you were talking about maybe doing a set list show, an exhibition I somewhere? I want to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and what would that look like? And then we can start talking about the music that you brought. 
well, um, Kariki will be the transition into go. that first track. Um, um, so, like, what would that look like? You would, like, pick... Remember we were talking about, like, you well, said I, something that's, like, visually interesting? Or yeah, like, I have several... Like, what would be the criteria, do you think? I have several that are interesting looking that, you know, set list is, like, nowadays, they're typically computer done. But, you know, most of the stuff in my collection is hand-drawn, handwritten, and someone had to write it, you know, and then make five copies, you know, copy for everybody. I mean, sometimes, it's just, you know, a band would only have one, uh, one set list. Taped to but, the stage or something. Yeah, yeah, but sometimes, you know, you'd make one for everybody, and now with computers, you know, you just type it up and, and print out five copies, you know. Or, you know, you, you'd handwrite it, like another development was you'd handwrite it, and then you'd make five copies yeah. of that paper, you know. But what would, what would you want to show? Like, what would it look like, do you think? But sometimes people would elaborate on that. I don't. I don't even. Want, I don't want to give. We too don't much want to talk away, about it. But I have some that are pretty visually interesting. Okay. I think it's like make, a teaser. We'll just yeah, pretend would, this is would a teaser. Make a, would um, make a more um, and lost souls would be maybe interesting. Am I revealing too much? I think we were saying that's maybe. where I want to do okay. it. I haven't talked to Jason about it. Right. So. But this, Jason, if you're yeah. listening, yeah. Uh, Tom has Hit a request. <laughs> so just call in. Uh, yeah. But why don't we move on? Uh, so why don't we tell folks who Kariki are, and then we'll play that first track that you brought. Sure. It's their single. So uh, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, Ian Mackay has a new band. Uh, they're called Kariki. It's him and Joe Lolly from Fugazi and Ian's wife, uh, Amy Farina, on drums. And they've been together for like three years. They've only been playing out for about two. <clears throat> they've only played... If I'm not mistaken, they've only played St. Stephen and in the Incarnation Church in D.C. And I think they played out of town once or twice. They, they've done a few shows out of town, typically. But in, locally, yeah. In, like, yeah, out of town, but not too far away. Um, but typically non-traditional venues, just like Evans and Fugazi did, you know, most of the time. And new album comes out. And the new album's coming out at the end of the month. And uh, they have one track available, so we're going to play that one. What's, what's it called? It's called Clean Kill. Love that. 
Um, so um, you've been following Fugazi for a while, and yeah. it, is that? I mean, is there anything in there you hear that's a Fugazi like? I very much. It, uh, in the way I describe it, is it's Fugazi unplugged. Yeah, <laughs> I love the harmonies. I mean, I've seen yeah. them a couple of times. I mm-hmm. love the harmonies. So yeah, and they did this out at Inner Ear, or do we know where they? I'm did pretty this? sure yeah. they did. Yeah. Great. So, and Tom brought uh, two other tracks, but um, I have one of the questions about like why uh, not let you're the expert. I'm just kind of throwing things out there just because I, I like to think about this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I was talking earlier about like different different places in the U.S. or in the in the world that had a punk scene or any sort of mm-hmm. regional what you might call regional music, but then it kind of becomes national and grows right. out. So like London had a punk scene in New mm-hmm. York and. Uh, Detroit and uh, L.A. and, and D.C. Yeah. But is there anything specific about D.C., like the D.C. brand, I hate that to say that, but the D.C. sort of um, flavor of punk music that's that would distinguish it from those other places I mentioned, or is this all just like... I don't know. I think there was a lot of, uh, you know, real determination to... To get it out there, you know, um, if you ever read the book "Our Life Could Be Your," uh, or was it "Our Band Could Be Your Life" uh, by Michael Azarad, you know, he talks about the the what the what these musicians went through to get their message out there. You know, living in vans, sleeping on floors, making no money. You know, I, I actually, find, you know, and he, uh, Henry's book "Get in the Van," you know, talks about the Henry, violence. Henry Rollins, Henry Rollins yeah. yeah, you know, he basically just, you know, spit out his tour journals, you know, in a book, and it talks about, you know, this the violence that was heaped upon him that he he went out there and um, just they just kept doing it. You know, it said that when they toured, when Black Flag toured, they had a bag of clothes and. When you needed, you know, to change, you just reached in the bag and found something. It wasn't like everybody had their luggage, you know, and nobody had, they didn't have separate hotel rooms and they weren't traveling in a bus. They were traveling in a van and, you know, they would throw the dirty clothes in another bag and they'd wash it when they could. And, you know, you'd reach in the bag and take out whatever was cleanest, you know, to wear. Um, You know, it was a cult. They were just like, this is our message. We have to get this out. And we're going to live, we're going to just do whatever we can to, to make this happen. Right. And Ian did this through Discord and all of his yeah, stuff. And, and, you know, Minor Threat did this. I mean, you know, there was no, they, they forged a path, you know, and they would trade, they would, they would share information about venues and people who were cool on the scene, you know, who would put them up and, and so on. And um, they just made it work. You yeah, know? yeah. They yeah. did it, you know, and, and some bands were you know were able to sell enough records to go to the next step and and get a van and you know stay in hotels sometimes or you know sometimes you could do a whole tour that way um you know but they were really devoted to it right and i was just going to make a plug tom Burrard's uh, collection the portions he's donated to the dc punk archive and uh just for anybody who wants to do research on the DC scene and explore that more, the archives, of course, are available to anyone who wants to use them, uh, including when we move back to MLK Library uh, in the fall. But uh, so Ian, when the, when uh, Kariki played at Georgetown uh, Public Library back in October, and Tom was there, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, you were there, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The show mm-hmm. behind the library. Uh, Ian oh, said oh, something yeah. great from the stage, which was something like, thanks to the DC Public Library, 
for recognizing that punk is sort of not dead, I'm paraphrasing, but still recognizing it as something still vital and still alive yes. and still present in D.C. and that it mm-hmm. keeps going. Right. Um, so, did, uh, and I'm trying to transition to the next track. Uh, so you still go see shows. You still yeah. like bands. It's not mm-hmm. a nostalgia thing for, we're turning the page now uh, to right. the present time more so and looking forward. But like, what um, what are what are some of the the ways you see that? Like, if you're if, they, if there's a band like I think it's the next track, a current band other mm-hmm. than Kariki that you like, is there something that you hear in that music that you're like, oh yeah, that's definitely like coming from that lineage? Like, yeah, oh, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, is it I, this track? Can we talk about the next track? Sure. Now? The next track I have is Foxhall Stacks, uh-huh. um, which is Brian Baker from Minor Threat. Jim Spellman, who was in Highback Chairs and uh, Velocity Girl. Um, and these are all like, like... Bill Barbeau, who was in Jawbox. And um, I hate this. That's <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, Brian actually has left the band. They have a new bass player because Brian lives in New Jersey and he's done Bad Religion thing. Um, so I don't think he can commit to it anymore. Um, who am I forgetting? We can Google it while we're playing the track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when we come back, we'll, we'll say who that is. So, um, but I was asking about this music and about this track and about DC, like, punking. Like, what, do you hear that lineage or that history? Totally. In, this um, ba- in, the, in these bands? You know, it's funny because I hear a lot of influences in Foxhall Stacks specifically. I mean, you know, Kariki is so close to Fugazi that that's mainly what I hear. But um, Are these guys on Discord or what are they on? Yeah, uh... We'll also look that up. I'm just asking questions. I was looking in Discogs, and it, it, I think they're on their own label, but I thought it was Discord. I, I'm not even sure. Um, well, yeah. Anyway. So this is more of a power pop slash, you know, power, or what is it? Pop punk kind power of punk. sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more the more the big big glossy produced thing, but it's still rock. Sure. Why don't we listen to that and listen for some of the, some of the glossy rocking. Yeah.
parents are knocking on the bedroom door telling us to turn that down. So <laughs> they always do that. We're turning it down now. Uh, thanks. Uh, so we did some Google research o- offline here uh, while we were off, off the air. And uh, what did we learn? Yeah, it's Pete Moffat on drums from GI. And, and oh, God, who else has Pete played with? <laughs> and then uh, Snappy Little Numbers was the label. Slappy, snappy Little Numbers is the label. Yeah, music geeks, like, they just, like, can't sleep until right. they, like, find out what, you know, what label was that? Or exactly. what was the third bass player's, la- you know, and first the, band? Um, the disc, the, I'm sorry, the Discogs entry is not complete because what they did was they, when Jawbox went on tour, Bill was selling the Foxhall Stacks cassette. They put out a cassette of two songs and um, each city they had a different OB on the cassette. So that means there's like 20 different versions of the cassette. Oh, I like that. I like that. And <laughs> yeah. I guess just to like tie that up a little bit, uh, you know, we're listening to current bands and just saying that, like, these people go on. Like, there's, like, yeah. DC Punk, if you ask somebody, oh, it's, like, you know, whatever, any, like, 79 <clears throat> to 85 or whatever. People want to throw out these, like, specific times. Yeah. It began on this date and ended on this date. And you could say that about psychedelic rock. You could say that about jazz or whatever. Yeah. You know, whatever. But, you know, like, the point being, like, Ian's point or what I'm, I'm trying to get at. Yes. And that's less you know, clear way was just that these things go on and these people live on and they still make music and they're still doing it. Yeah, and to that end, um, it's really great to see Alec Mackay singing again. He's got a new band called Hammered Hulls and we got them to play. And I think we're going to play an excerpt of that and then we'll wrap things up if that's all right. Um, yeah. Anything we want to say about that track before we Well, play? it's Alec and Mark Cisneros um, who's doing, he's touring with makeup right now and uh, you know he played with a whole bunch of people like uh, is Kid he ba- Congo. bass? He, he uh, well, uh, with he, makeup. He plays all kinds of. He plays a bunch of stuff. Oh, guitar! I know. Yeah, that. he plays guitar, drums. Uh, he's playing drums with makeup. He played guitar with. Um, oh God! Yeah, he's he's in guitar in Hammered Halls, and he was playing stretch saxophone with the low ways quartet wow, who okay. we saw at the church just a few weeks ago so uh, tom Burrard's greatest <laughs> hits in all of like five minutes yeah. so um, why don't we play some of this go for it was hammered halls right is there anything else you want to say about those guys well mary timoney and chris wilson are also in the band so that's, oh, okay. the, that's the full lineup uh, we're coming on the like the last chapter of our talk today with uh tom berard who also goes by tommy b uh <laughs> the dj tommy b that's me and so are you playing this stuff when you dj or are you playing whatever you feel like um i yeah i play whatever i mean uh, you know sometimes like when i did the show with robbie white 
at WOWD a few weeks ago. I made a point of it all being local, and it was all old stuff. It was all vintage. You know, I didn't play anything current. Um, I don't know why. You know. Yeah. (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, just I asked Tom uh, if there's anything going on, uh, and he said no. But then, yeah, (laughs) but then I feel like it is kind of a big deal. So yeah, okay. This is unrelated, it sort of, but I'm uh, my. My high school has a Hall of Fame. The Dramatic Association has a Hall of Fame, and I'm being inducted with the cast and crew of the 1979 production of Guys and Dolls on Saturday. So, uh, but wait, that's not punk. That's not that's punk. That's not punk. No. no, but it's why Broadway? <laughs> but wait, why them? Broadway the hard way. <laughs> but why them? Why are you included in that induction? Just because, because I was on the crew. Oh, I got you. I was on the stage. Cast crew. and crew. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. What did you do on the crew? What was I your... was the loft manager. I flew the scenery in and out. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. I pictured you at the soundboard or something. But no, no. no. Um, but that's all I've got for today. <laughs> um, is there anything else you want to say before we close? I think we're uh, we're good. No, I think we're good. We're good. All right. All right. Great. Thanks again for having yeah, me. Yeah. Thanks for coming in, Tom. Yeah. Uh, so thanks for joining us today, and thanks, Tom. You've been listening to uh, Notes from the Library. Uh, this was an episode of, I'm sorry, All Things Local. I'm reading an old script. Uh, it was going so well. Um, so this was an episode of All Things Local from D.C. Public Library. We're broadcasting live from uh, the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan. This is full-service radio. Visit us at dclibrary.org for more information or follow us on Twitter at DCPL or Instagram for the kids out there at D.C. Public Library. Um, go to dcpl.simplecast.com to listen to this and previous episodes of the greatest podcast ever, DC Public Library and Full Service Radio. Have a good afternoon, everybody, and thanks for listening. Black Dad, I... yeah,